Good morning. It's good to see you. I want to welcome you if you're a guest with us. It's good to have you here this morning. And I want to invite you in to uh, remember for the first time with us a little bit about what's gone on in the past several years of our church. So I know some of you, uh, you're hearing this for the first time because you may be here for the first time or because you haven't been here for all that long, but I want us... I want to start this fall or this September time frame looking forward to what we're going to be doing in October with the planting of this campus, but I want us to look forward to it by looking back at how it happened. And so this is roundabout how it happened. In, Feb- in January, February of 2010, uh, actually leading up to that, Pastor Terry and I in September before that year felt convicted to... Uh, bring the church to the book of Acts um, to read and understand what God intends for the way his church spreads. And so in January of that year, 2010, we began to preach through a sermon series we called The Scattering, which is uh, what's on the cover of your bulletin. And we preached through uh, Acts from the stoning of Stephen all the way up until the calling of Paul. And through that uh, was a strong conviction that the church to be a true church, the true church of Jesus Christ. Not only are we maturing in our souls and as a community, not only do we desire growth, uh, more people in this area to walk through these doors and sit down and come to know Christ and worship Christ here, but, but that the church of Jesus Christ also bears the responsibility of taking his word to new places, places that haven't heard it or have grown tired of hearing it in a certain way and need to rehear the same message from new voices, we felt drawn to do that. And so we were preaching through that from January, February, and March. We finished in March. And in April, we received a question, I believe, from the Lord, which was the question of Loma. Now, I got to tell you, those of you who have been here for the question of Loma, even now, you might even get tense uh, because of what was asked of the church, I, I deal with, I, I deal with heaviness when I deal with the question of Loma, because it was such a big question for us to ask. For those of you who are like, "What's Loma?" We we own and operate a coffee shop on Market Street in Wilmington. It was a goal of going to a new place and listening with the hope of being able to proclaim Christ there in a way that's contextually relevant and invited. And we didn't know, I could not have said it like that two and a half years ago. We just felt we had a question from the Lord. And those of you who were here throughout it, I mean, we, we had to deal with very difficult things. Last night, I opened up my email and I went back to the old emails from you. Man, it was hard. It was, I had to stop. You know, not stop because it was bad, stop because of the weight the weight of the cost, the weight of the step of faith. We had a business model done in our church over what it would cost us to do that. And listen, I'm not a money guy, you know that. Um, But sometimes it's important to mark these things because this is how people of God sometimes quantify the step of faith. So we're going to measure out the distance we stepped. Here's how we measured it out. We had a team that said, if we're going to do this, this is what it's going to cost us. And they said, chances are it will hemorrhage cash. It is not a successful business model. No one was 
frank enough to say it to me exactly that way, but the numbers said, best case scenario, it'll break even. We had two models. Best case of the best case model, it will break even. Worst case of the worst case model, it will hand over fist lose $150,000 a year. That was when we were deciding, do we make the attempt of a suburban community to go down to Market Street for the hope and belief that Jesus Christ wants to talk about Jesus there just as much as he wants to talk about Jesus here, that was the size of the step. And the vote told it. You know, Pastor Terry just said, this, this idea of believing God is with you and yet having the full humility that it is not you showed up at the vote. Right? I mean, for those of you who weren't there, let me just tell you, I think there were 156 votes about. 100, and what we said as a church, because it was a difficult issue, we said if we're doing this, 75% of the church has to vote yes. 156 votes, the vote was 75.00 yes. Point zero zero. I mean, like I will never forget that day. To be to have the feeling like God has spoken and yet the most profound humility that I've ever experienced. Like God has a will and it has nothing to do with us. That was that day. And I'm just saying two years ago, May, May 23rd, it entered, Loma entered the voice of the church, July 25th. That was the vote. I mean, we're sitting two years from that time period where we were looking at this huge cost where man was saying, look, I mean, I have had many, many of you kind of said, really? In a godly, loving way, one of you stood with me on the corner of Loma and said, really? Exactly like that. You know, and there was, the church said in the most humble way it could, the corporate voice of the church, 75.00 was, we think you're speaking, God, but it's going to take faith. The next three weeks, as we lead up to the sending of 30 adults and 20 children to uh, Market Street to worship regularly on Sunday morning, to call that their place of worship and to call that their new church home. As we're playing, uh, preparing for that, we're going to spend the next several weeks play, uh, speaking to theologically what God's word has done in the life of this church, what he intends, why he's doing it, why not only are we doing this in October, but that we have agreed to be a church that's going to continue to try to do this. That one day it would be great if not just one church was planted, but if the we had a culture and a heritage that said we plant churches because God spreads his gospel. It's what he does, and we partner in it. And so we're going to spend these three weeks. On September 23rd, you've got to be here because we're going to worship all together. And I don't mean like all of us worship together. I mean there were more of you here at 9, and we're going to all worship together. We're going to rent a big tent. We're going to put it in the field. I'm serious. We're doing it. Uh, we're going to put everybody under this tent. And we're going to celebrate. It'll be one service from t- at 10.30. We're going to celebrate. And then after that, we'll have a big shindiggity potluck, you know, time together where we eat and, and, and fellowship. And uh, I just want you to be there for it. I want you to see it. I want your children to see it. I think it's important that the church marks 
when God has moved and we point to him and say, you did it. I want my children to see that. I want my children to know that there's a living God, not a dead God, and that he still cares about this earth. And that's what we're going to do on the 23rd. So I invite you forward. And, and we're, these weeks are just leading towards that. So if you would, open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, verse 8. Acts 1 verse 8 is the theme of the book of Acts. That's how it's referred to, um, typically in the church. It's the table of contents of the book of Acts. And this is what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the thesis of Acts. Acts one eight is important for several reasons. Not only is it the theme of the book, but it is the last recorded words of Jesus Christ before he was taken up to be with the Father in heaven. And so all the more reason that it's important. In other words, Luke isn't deciding to make this the theme of Acts. Luke is recognizing these were thematic words of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is leaving and is as he's leaving, he's imparting or, le- or leaving to mankind, this is what's going to happen. And there's a lot of transition that's happening here in Acts 1. Significant transition in the story of God. For one, we're moving from having Christ with us to having the Spirit with us. That's happening right here in Acts 1. There, there is, in addition to that, there's this idea that the ministry of God is no longer going to be seated on a man, Jesus Christ, but that it's going to be distributed to his people, the members of his body. So that's also happening now. It's been foreshadowed by the sending out of the 12 and the sending out of the 72, but those were practice runs for what's going to be the reality of, of the faith, which is the faith is now moving from man to spirit, And it's also moving from a person to a people. It's from a man to members that are going out. If you can try to imagine how much of a change this would be for the followers of Christ and the apostles, it's also moving from a a ministry where they have gathered around and followed to one where they are sent out and they lead. I think, I mean, the more you imagine into that, it Matt, you can just, it's a lot of change. And it's in this that Jesus Christ speaks, that they will receive power through the Spirit and they will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to all the earth. And this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens. And Luke attests to it. If you look at Acts chapter 2, and we're not going to read a lot of Scripture, but in Acts chapter 2, there is what they call the time of Pentecost. And Pentecost is a time where it was an international festival where the Hebrew people would come back to Jerusalem. And so even in chapter 2, verse 5, it says there were Jews there from every nation under heaven. That they had gathered together to worship the Lord. And on that moment, the Holy Spirit chose his time to enter into people and to speak through the apostles. And the apostles began to speak and to draw people to Christ. And on that day, 3,000 were added to the number. That's what the Bible says, on that day. And Luke wants you to see, you see, 
Christ said it and the Spirit did it. And then if you look in the fifth chapter of Acts, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, you see that word is traveled. After some time of this happening, it says crowds gathered. And not only from Jerusalem, but from the surrounding towns, it says. From the surrounding towns in the area, they came to Jerusalem to hear. What's that surrounding area called? It's Judea. So from the area of Judea, people are coming. Luke's making sure that we see this in the writing, that God said it and it happened. Jerusalem heard, and then it filtered into Judea. In fact, he even says in the 8th chapter, if you turn there, that after the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen, when the people were scattered, he says a great persecution broke out. And he says, if you look in 8.1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through where? Throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. So the author of this book is showing you through God's word that not only has the Lord reached Jerusalem, but he's now reached Judea and Samaria. In fact, very next thing is that Philip goes down to Samaria and begins to preach. And then you get to the 13th chapter of Acts where Paul and Barnabas are called. Right there in 13 verse 1. And you see the beginning of the intentional spreading of the church throughout the greater world, throughout the world of Middle Earth and beyond. This is what it says in 13 verse 1. It says, In the city of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Next thing you know, they're in Cyprus, then they're in Asia Minor, then they're in Macedonia, then they're in Athens and Greece, and all through the lands. And by the time the book of Acts comes to an end, Paul is preaching the gospel in Rome. I'm saying in the book of Acts, it wasn't an allegorical statement. Jesus wasn't simply implying that a few towns would hear, he said it and it happened. He declared it prophetically and it happened. And at this level, we can see that this statement, Acts 1.8, is discreetly geographical. I mean, there is a very geographical truth to it that Jesus said it's going to happen and it really did. The word really did spread to Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he really did do that through the witnesses of Christ. And they really did do that through the power that was received from the Holy Spirit. That's really how it happened. And it's true at that level, and we should value it at that level, but there's another level in which it's true. And we might say that God is also declaring a principle about his mission when he says this. So not only is the Lord saying that the word will go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, I think the Lord is also declaring about himself that my spirit will propagate the truth of God through my people. Now that's just generically true. It's a spiritual principle that's at work. That God cares for more than simply Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Rome. In other words, there is a sense in which we are a church at the end of the earth. And there is a sense where once the gospel is taken root in our church, we are a new Jerusalem. 
there's a sense in which we see ourselves of having received this gift that has been born over land and water and through martyrdom and persecution years and centuries through the careful navigation of God's Spirit to get all the way here to this place called Hokesson. Right? We recognize that we have received it. We are at the end of the earth from where it started, and we see that. But we also see that the principle is true in our lives, that God would also have us take this word and be witnesses in a, in a nature that spreads out as though we are our own epicenter of the way the gospel extends. We are a new Jerusalem with a new Judea and a new Samaria and our own idea of the ends of the earth. In other, in other words, it's geographic and it's emblematic of how God works. You might think of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends as being almost like our town, our region, our people, the earth. Who is more fit to reach this area than us? We're witnesses of Jesus Christ who know these people. And so there's a sense that we, we are a new Jerusalem in the way that we think about that, that phrase and that we are being sent to reach our town and our region and our generic people, but that we are still mindful of the lostness at the ends of the earth. That we would still think in our minds that it's not enough if everyone in the United States knew Christ because there are ends of the earth who have yet to hear. Another way of thinking about it, by the way, I think this is maybe a secondary meaning or a meditation on this phrase, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But it's, it's, it's blessed me this week to think about it this way, is... If you think about it from like the culture of faith, you can think if we're called to Jerusalem, we're called to people who are, have a like religious background to us. So we're called to minister and to witness to people who have a Christian background. And if you think of Judea as being just one step removed from that, we're called to people who have familiarity with the faith but may not be practicing it as fervently. And if you think of Samaria as a group of people who have once had the Lord and since rejected him, we're called also to the pro-Christian community. And we're also called to people who have yet to hear. We're called to Christians. We're called to people who have a Christian culture. We're called to post-Christians. And we're called to people who have yet to hear. There is no way in which we are not called to witness of God's goodness and his salvation to the earth. We should remember that. It is the teachings that propelled us two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago, we said, we do a really good job caring for one another, and we do a really good job kind of growing here in an honest way but we are not intentionally taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to a new place and preaching it with conviction. And we ought to do that. We begin to pray, Lord, show us a way to do that. We should remember that. And with this comes a challenge. There is a word in Acts 1.8 that you can turn back to Acts 1. There's a word in Acts 1.8 that is uh, often ignored It's a small, inconsequential word that is actually meaningless apart from the larger context. And the word is but. Actually, if you asked me what, what Acts 1-8 was a week ago, if I wasn't on my 
P's and Q's and didn't know it was a quiz, I would have likely said something to you like this, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's probably what I would have said, which is not Acts 1.8. It's, it's the second half of Acts 1.8. Actually, the first half of Acts 8 is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Semicolon. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I want us to stop a little bit and notice the, the word, that first word, but there. Why is it there? It connects it to the earlier statement. It's kind of like a however. It's a way of kind of grammatically expressing a contrasting idea to the previous clause. And so we should look at the previous clause. And the previous clause, Jesus says, and this is why we always ignore it, is because Acts 1-7 is not fun. He said to them, speaking of Christ, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses across the face of the earth. So Jesus is saying, hey, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set, which really doesn't mean much to us. I mean, Acts 1-7 by itself is a lonely verse. Unless we realize that it's answering a question. See, so Acts 1-8 is really got to be answered in light of Acts 1-6, which if you look, the apostles ask him this question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Maybe, I, maybe it was sounded, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, he, they have expectation. God has promised that he's going to do something, and it hasn't completely happened yet. But there's a Jewish promise, and the Jewish promise is that Israel would in fact be reestablished and that the throne of Israel would reign. In fact, the nations would come and bow down to Israel. That's the promise that they're waiting for. Remember in Genesis 48, the promise to Judah, the scepter will not depart from you and nations will come and bow down to you. When is that happening? Like they're still enslaved right now to the Roman Empire. They're subjects of an evil, satanic Roman empire. That's what the Hebrew people know. And the, and, and the apostles are wondering, now that the Lord is resurrected, now that he's here and among us, now that he's teaching us things with clearness, now that he's about to give us the spirit, now that all of this is happening, the obvious question is, is this the time now that you're going to come and consummate and complete all that you've promised? To which Jesus says, that's the wrong question. I mean, it's not for you to know the times or dates when the Lord's going to do this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now do you hear what's happening? There is an incorrect anticipation of the people of God, which is this. And listen, this isn't just Jewish. This is human. 
This is, when I come to know the Lord as my Savior, and I trust in him for all the days of my life, and I say, I am going to steadfastly follow you until the day I die, and then I will not die. You will give me life, and I believe that, and I long for it. When we do that, when we do that, and we call ourselves followers, and we pledge allegiance to him, and we say, my fealty is in Christ the King, and I worship his kingdom and his kingdom only. When that is what we do, it is natural for us to expect him to Fulfill the promises he has given. So now that I'm on the inside, Lord, I have this sin issue. Is there anybody here who wishes that God had taken away the sins that God said he would take away? Is there anyone here who longs that God would solve the loneliness that his gospel declares he will solve? Is there anyone here who, who wishes, God, you have not, I do not feel the consummation of new life in me. I have a hope for it. I have a desire for it. When are you going to do that? When will you establish your kingdom in me? We do this individually, and we do it corporately. We plant a church, we birth a church, we invest in a church. Right? That church was planted as an evangelistic effort by witnesses to come and share the word of God in a new place. It gets planted, it gets built and established, and then it begins to slowly and unconsciously and unintentionally turn itself into itself and look and, because it begins to apply all of its effort towards fulfilling the restoration of God in its very setting. That's the question. The apostles ask, now that you're risen, are you going to fix it all? To which Jesus Christ says, that is not for you to know. He doesn't say no, by the way. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates when it's going to happen. So his answer is a sideways yes. It's yes, it's going to happen. It's irre- it should be immaterial to you as to when it does. When you are before the throne, you will not be lonely or sinful or hurting or mourning or weeping. God promises us that. At the end of the age, all will be better. There will be no night. The glory of the Lord will be our daylight. But Jesus says, that should not be your present urgent concern. However, you will receive power. And the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Israel. Don't you see? The church, this is the challenge. The church will have an tendency because the church is made of people and people who long for the correction and salvation and redemption of Christ in all of its various forms. We are a people who, if we're not careful, will, will forget the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to us largely in order to take the word somewhere else. And we will wonder... It, and assume that the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is to fix us here and now. In fact, some of you will not share the word because you don't think you're good enough. To which I would say the words of Christ. It's not for you to know the times or dates when you're going to be fully fixed. But this is what I say to you. God's power has come on you through your reception of the Holy Spirit. Go and be a witness. Are you, are you placing yourself outside of that because you haven't fully received the restoration of God the way you wanted it? Here's the deal. There are ends of the earth who have not heard of Jesus Christ. They haven't heard. 
This is it. We're saying, Lord, come. Lord, come quickly. There's times I pray, Lord, Jesus, come quickly. I pray the words of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. And I wonder if there's someone else on the other side of the earth saying, dear Lord, don't come quickly. Give us a few more days. Give us more time. Because we have to spread the gospel to new people. There are ends of the earth that are not in the comfort of Christ like we are. And we should be driven by that. We should be mindful of that, and we should be challenged by that. That we should not want and desire to have the fullness of God's restoration if it comes at the cost of those who have not had a chance to hear. In fact, we should be driven out of the walls of this church and onto the roads of this earth so that people might know, and then the end will come. It's for this reason that we've said from the beginning when we were going to plant a church, we said, let's, let's try to plant a church. And we said, well, not so fast. We said, we don't want to plant a church. We want to try to be a church that has a culture of trying to plant churches. We don't want this to be this thing we did, this feather in our cap, this thing we brag about that becomes a source of personal pride. Rather, we want to continually experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the spreading of his gospel through this new thing for us. May we be challenged in doing that. But in our challenge, I want to offer an encouragement. And the encouragement comes in in the first part of Acts 1.8. We've been talking on either side of it right now, but it's central. In fact, it is the cause agent of evangelism. And it is this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Listen, that is not for the apostles. That is true. Listen, Christian, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the earth. It is a true principle. Jesus Christ has gone and has given his spirit so that we would receive power when the spirit comes on us so that we might be his witnesses in all the earth. And we say, ah, well, no, actually it's talking about Pentecost there. I think it's just talking about Pentecost because that's what happens, right? In chapter two, there's Pentecost and the spirit comes and they receive power. And then when they receive power, they preach the gospel powerfully by the power of the spirit at Pentecost in Jerusalem and 3,000 are added that day. And we say, so actually... It's a discrete teaching about that moment in time. It's, it's, in other words, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But it's also a principle and it's more than just Jerusalem. Every single time that Luke goes to show the gospel going to a new quantum leap of this testimony, the Spirit shows up. So in the fifth chapter, when the Spirit begins to hit Judea, what, what, why are people coming from the surrounding towns? They're coming from the surrounding towns because the power of the Spirit is being made manifest among the people. It says it's there in Acts chapter 5, right there where it says, the shadow of Peter healed crippled people. 
People from around were doing anything to get those who were possessed and those who were injured to come and to be healed. And then the apostles would preach and teach the word. They would connect the truth of God's word with the new life that people had received. And that's how the church would grow. The spirit was every bit as much present with the word going to Judea as it was going to Jerusalem. And look at the way it gets to Samaria. Acts chapter 8. Actually, it's a persecution. But not really. It's spread by a persecution. But if you look at the whole way the situation's set up, who was, who was martyred in Acts chapter 8? Stephen. Who was Stephen? Acts 6 says Stephen was a young man full of the Holy Spirit. When Stephen was pulled in front of the Sanhedrin, it says that his face looked like that of an angel. And when he preached, he was preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he arrived at the end of this sermon, towards the end of chapter 8, look at 51. He finally, it's almost, by the way, when you're reading Stephen's sermon, you're like, man, he was just getting going. And then he slams him. It's almost like the Spirit said, oh, enough, Stephen. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's talk about why you're really here. And Stephen says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your, your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed him and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels and have not obeyed it. And when he says that, it says that those of the Sanhedrin gnashed their teeth and were furious at him. And they went, oh, they were so angry with him. But it, they, didn't, they didn't get him. They didn't kill him. They were just at the distance, like a dog on the end of a chain, gnashing their teeth and angry at him, barking at him, barking at him. And it's almost as though the Spirit says, all right, I got to fix this thing. So this is what happens. 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now listen, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they dragged him out. They rushed out, dragged him out, and they stoned him. Who's responsible for the scattering? On that day, a great persecution broke out, and everyone who was scattered preached the word wherever they went. That's Acts 8.4. Has not the Spirit been instrumental in, in driving the people of God out? God is going to have his word spread, whether, he, whether we do it voluntarily or whether we don't get it and we have to do it through great persecution. But the Holy Spirit was instrumental there, just as he was in Acts 13. In Acts 13, it says the Holy Spirit, it says Paul and Barnabas were in prayer with the church leaders. They were in prayer and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have him to do. I'm saying that we're not simply being told, go be missionary. That's not the command to the church. Acts 1.8 is actually not a command. Acts 1.8 is a declaration. Acts 1.8 is, you will be missionary to the earth, and you will be that way because my spirit has given you power. We do these things by the power of the spirit. We step out on faith and 
hope and pray that the power of the Spirit is present with us. And we do it humbly, just like Pastor Terry said. We do it humbly so that we don't overstep or step out on our own faith or step out in a way that tests the Lord. But we do it in a 75.00% way of going, dear God, we think you've moved, but you have to show up. And he does. No one, no one who spends time down at Loma does not see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. It's overwhelming. When we started this project, we did not commit to plant a church. There was no committal at all to plant a church when we voted on Loma. Why? Because for one, there was a spirit of humility on what will happen. It didn't seem right for us to say, we're just going to go down and plant church because God plants churches. People don't plant churches. We didn't know if that was God's will. And we said, it's enough for us simply to go be a witness. You can be a witness of God and not plant a church. We're called to go be witnesses. And so we said, we just need to go down there. And we need to go down there with big ears and big eyes and, and a mouth that desires to share when the time is right. And that's why we had the ministry side and the coffee side. And we said, we're going to go down there, but we're going we're to wait for God's timing. And who knows, maybe one day we'll plant a church. Two years later, two years later, in less than two years from it opening its doors, there will be a community that worships there. And there are people that are asking, when are you coming? When are you coming? You know, I, I, I said, I'm not a money person, but we, we judged the size of the step of our faith financially, which to young ears sounds lame, maybe. It's legit. It's a way you quantify to the Lord. It's a way of being responsible and careful. And when we said it, we said, wow, this thing is likely going to hemorrhage cash. 50,000 to 150,000 a year are going to pour out. That is the step of faith. If we go down there and God is not down there, we are going to be looking for an exit strategy six months into this thing. That's what we said two years from now. It's in the black. It generates positive revenue. It pays for the ministry space. And everybody's there. There's a line out the door at lunch. I'm saying that to say to you, do you see the Holy Spirit at work when the Holy Spirit is at work? Are we not encouraged to step out? Listen, if you're one of the families going down there with all humility as though one saved by God, you should go down knowing that power will come upon you and the Holy Spirit will be with you because of what the Holy Spirit has done. When we tried to do this, we said we have to raise all this money to do this thing, which will likely never generate, which will be way in the red. And at the same time, there are people going, you know, we owe fifty to $60,000 on our building. We have a quarter of a million dollars in the bank. I don't know how it got there. We have a ministry that is in the black, that is blessing people downtown, that is planting a church inside of two years of opening, and we're talking about fixing this building up. That is the Lord. And you got to see it. 
and it should embolden those who are being sent, and it should embolden those that remain here to do it again when the Lord so calls. doesn't mean we brainstorm a time to do it again. It doesn't mean we automatically do it again. doesn't mean we thoughtlessly do it again. doesn't mean we expect it to be the same time next time as it was this time. doesn't mean we become a coffee shop kind of trendy thing or whatever. Maybe it's in Oxford. Maybe it's in Oxford, England. It doesn't mean that. It means we bow to the Lord and we listen because we trust that he is the cause agent. He's the change agent. His power will come on us, and when we receive the Spirit, we will be as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, because we are not the ends of the earth. There are some who have yet to hear. We are a new Jerusalem. And I pray we would believe that. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? Father, I pray you would assign to us good memories of your power. Lord, I think of when the Hebrew people crossed the Jordan, they took out 12 stones to say, God did this. God did this, not us. All we did was walk across ground. God parted the waters. Father, when you fed your people man in the desert, you said, take a little bit and put it in a jar so that you remember that I did this. Father, your own son and John said, said, Moses, the father fed you through Moses for 40 years, but I am the bread of life. Lord, you hearken to that memory. Father, the gospel is connected to the memory of your graciousness to us. When we see what you've done, we trust in what you can and will do for us. Lord, we remind ourselves that in the Great Commission, it begins with all power and authority has been given to me, therefore go, Lord. Father, we, call, we, we, we pray for humble spirits, but with a confidence that if we are in your will, your power will sustain, Lord. And we, we confess to you, Lord, that that doesn't mean that it's always going to be success, that it's always going to be great things in the black and great blessings, Father, that you may, through your own will and providence, martyr the church so as to spread the gospel, Father. We pray that you would spread the gospel. We pray that we would be faithful in what you've called us to do and that we would be mindful of what you have done because we are not at the end of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.